Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Hello, everyone. We're going to start on time, and I'm sure we'll have people join after we get started. But I want to make sure we have the entire time available for our presenters and for Q&A. My name is Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. I am the Founder and Executive Director of Women of Color Advancing Peace and conflict transformation. And it's my honor to bring to you this program that's uh, hosted by our working group on CBRN. And our chairs of the working group are Sylvia Mishra and Wathra Amir. And this is going to be a presentation that we wanted to do for quite a while. So I'm really glad that we're able to do this. So we're gonna have our speakers present and then there's gonna be some time for Q&A. For those of you who are not part of WCAPS, uh, please check it out. You can go to wcaps.org, wcaps.org and find out more about the organization. And before I turn it over to Wartha, I just wanna just thank all of the panelists, all of our amazing panelists who are here to talk about their experiences at NNSA and encourage all of you to consider it and look into it. And Wartha will talk about the application process, and everyone will talk a little bit about their experiences. And then, of course, they'll have a chance to answer your questions. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, Wartha. Thank you so much, Bonnie. I just want to say thank you again to everybody, all the panelists who have kind of been in conversations with me about doing this event for months at a time. I've been wanting to do this for a very long time, so I really, really appreciate all the panelists who are here today to talk about and share their experiences of going through the NNSA Graduate Fellowship Program, the National Nuclear Security Administration Graduate Fellowship Program. And I want to thank my co-chair, Sylvia Mishra, who said, you know, we're going through a difficult time right now where it's all at home, but let's do this. Let's do this virtually and online. And I want to thank Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins for always supporting all the ideas in, that we have for these events and, you know, for the platform that she has created in the Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security that I think provided me a safe space, but also introduced me to a lot of the women on your screen today for this particular fellow, like this, you know, all the women of color who've been through this fellowship program and each of them, I call them an inspirational group of women because they each have inspired me in one way or the other in my interactions. So thank you all for being here today. Also, I want to thank uh, Jesse from PNNL, who also has, PNNL has been in conversations with me about this event since last fall. And I thank them for also highlighting and appreciating the importance of diversity and making sure that future NGFP cohorts, including the one right now, is a diverse group of fellows. So thank you for being here today to answer questions about the application process. So we are also going to be, Sylvia Mishra is going to be live tweeting this event today. And so if you would like to kind of tweet the event, please feel free to tweet us at WCAPSNet. Feel free to tweet at SecurityPNNL. And you can use the hashtag WCAPSCBRN. With that, I think it is now time to introduce our panelists. I'm going to go over their bios very quickly. And I'm going to start with my colleague, 
at the National Labor Security Administration, my current fellow, Erica Wolf. She's currently a 2019 to 2020 fellow with the Office of Nuclear Smuggling Detection and Deterrence, and it's been an absolute pleasure to work with her in this role. Prior to the fellowship, she spent six years as a federal contractor for the U.S. Agency for International Development. And following the fellowship, Erica will transition to the Office of Policy and Strategic Planning in the Office of the Administrator at the National Nuclear Security Administration. So congratulations, Erica, and we're very excited to see all the impact you're going to create in that role. Next is Lauren Williams. She's a program analyst with the NNSA's Office of Nuclear Export Controls and covers the Caucasus region, Ukraine, and South Asia. Previously, she was a NNSA graduate fellow in, in the office. And before working at NNSA, Lauren was a project manager and junior fellow with the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And in, she interned with Departments of Defense and the Department of State. Lauren has received a master's degree in public affairs from Princeton University and a bachelor's degree from Stanford University in, with honors in international security studies. So thank you, Lauren, for being here. And I think she, Lauren has personally been a just a mentor and a friend at the NNSA over the course of my, of my fellowship this past year. So thank you, Lauren. Next, we have Tracy Ann Wellington. She serves at Oak Ridge National Lab, where she's a program manager for the U.S. Department of State, where she works to translate scientific principles into policy and practice. Prior to her time at ORNL, Tracy has served at, as an American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS, Science and Technology Fellow with the Office of Weapons of Mass Destruction Terrorism at the U.S. Department of State. And she's also was a graduate fellow with the, at the NNSA with the Office of Nuclear Export Controls. Tracy holds a PhD in Energy Science and Engineering from the University of Tennessee, a master's degree in Material Science and Engineering from Texas A&M University, and a bachelor's in Mathematical Physics from Randolph College. I remember meeting Tracy when she was at Department of State, and Tracy was one of the people who really encouraged me to apply for this fellowship program. So I really appreciate you being here again to inspire other people to apply as well. Marina Robinson Snowden is a senior engineer in the National Security Analysis Department at the John Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Prior to this, Marina was a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow with the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where her research focused on nuclear arms control verification, nonproliferation, and modernization. In 2017 to 2018, Robinson Snowden served as a National Nuclear Security Administration Graduate Fellow in the Office of Major Modernization Programs. She's earned her PhD in nuclear engineering from MIT in 2017, and she holds a BS in physics from Florida A&M University. Marina also was one of the people who only said good things to me about applying to this. Like when I got accepted and I found out I was going into it, she only had words of encouragement for me to join the program. And she's just done great things and impactful work in the nuclear space for women of color. Also was behind the scenes and the rock star behind the Carnegie Nuclear Conference where we had our first diversity panel at the Carnegie Nuclear Conference. So, all right, so now, now that we've gone over like just the bios, I really want to know your stories. And I think it's important to share those stories with anybody who is listening and tuning in, all the women of color who, I, I think the point of this event was to share 
a pass on a torch that I think was passed on to myself before I got to join the scholarship program and continue to pass it on to other women of color. I want to know what stood out to you guys when you were applying to the scholarship program. What made you want to apply when you were in the shoes of being an applicant? Where were you at at your story at that point? And what was that decision making that made you say, this is a fellowship program I want to apply to? And Erica, I will start with you. Sure. Thank you, Warda. So yeah, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting story how I literally felt like I stumbled upon the graduate fellowship. As you've mentioned um, a little bit in my bio, I was coming from the international development field, having spent six years working as a contractor at headquarters at USA. Prior to that, four to five years working with implementing organizations, Heifer International and Creative Associates International, doing development work for Latin America and East Africa. And kind of gotten to a point in my career, you know, with working as a contractor and for private organizations, you do have the ability to kind of move up fairly quickly in your career. And I felt that I, you know, sort of done that at USAID. And then under the current administration, I saw a bit of the writing on the wall. The budget environment had gotten pretty tight. And, you know, I really felt like I was at a point with international development where I just felt like, you know, I, I wasn't really quite sure what long-term, what my career would continue to look like there. So during this time as well, I was actually working on my second graduate degree at Howard University. And actually the, the fellowship itself, the announcement about it, you know, over a career services email, and they were on campus that day kind of recruiting. And I had you know, left work for the day at USAID, and I had a little bit of time where the session was taking place on campus right before an evening class. And I said, you know, maybe I'll just kind of swing by, see what this is all about. And I think what, it really, what really attracted me to the graduate program, once I kind of got past the name, because, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a scientific background, I don't have an engineering background. So, you know, at first I thought that that would deter me from being able to take advantage of this opportunity. But after I kind of learned a bit more about it and, you know, the international affairs aspect I really connected with and the ability that it offers to, to work with this wide range of different offices. And as Warden mentioned, I ended up, you know, in an office, nuclear smuggling detection and deterrence, that is an international program that does capacity building. So I really found something that I felt that I could connect to, that I could add value in because of my previous work in development. And so I decided to apply. So that would, you know, definitely be one of the things that you know, offer to folks is not to be turned from applying to this program because of, you know, the nuclear word that's there in, you know, in the program, nuclear security, because there's so much, I think, beyond uh, the name itself and so just a wide range of opportunities that it provides, both on the technical, but also on the non-technical and policy realm. And I find it very engaging as well. So, that's one thing that really stood out to me, and I found a way to, to connect to the, the program in that way. Sure. Yeah, there's definitely a good amount of things that I, I resonate with from Erica's story. For me, maybe it's a little bit more linear. So as, as Warda mentioned, I have a nuclear policy background from the political science, non, non-technical science perspective. I 
had begun studying nuclear issues and nuclear governance and those kinds of things while I was an undergrad. And it's really a story, you know, my path to the NNSA was really a story about people connections, mentorship that I'm very passionate about, and just knowing for myself also that I my longer term goals were to be in government. So I had previously worked, um, my most relevant work experience prior to NNSA had been at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which is the background that Marina and I share. And it was really pushed to think very critically about nuclear issues, was, you know, pushed into responsibilities that I might not have you know, expected at that young age in my career. And I, I look back at, at those experiences and I see them kind of a very direct link to my overall experience at NSA as well, in terms of the project management experience that I got early on, you know, going to conferences where I was talking about a nuclear suppliers group and these kind of technical issues and interacting with foreign governments and those kinds of things that I had a chance to do very early on. But uh, I was at Carnegie, was a researcher purely for about two years. Absolutely loved my experience, enjoyed it there and made great connections. But again, I knew that I wanted to work in government at some point in my career. And so like many of us, I got to the point where I was like, okay, how do I make that transition? And as you know, most of us probably on this call are aware, it's, there's not, there aren't so many pathways. It's not an easy you know, decision to say, I want to be in government to get from outside and go in. So you know, as many people do, I decided to go to grad school after I had been a researcher and thought, okay, well, I know I have to have a graduate degree probably to get myself in the door. Um, I wasn't quite thinking about NG, the NNSA program quite then, but it, I think it was while I was in grad school, you'll see, you'll see all the connections between us and the network and the community that we have. I attended the 2017 Carnegie Conference and came back from grad school to interact with some of my old colleagues. And I met Marina there, and, as well as other fellows from her cohort. And they just seemed, as Warda mentioned about her experience with Marina, they just seemed like they were getting so much out of the program, um, that there were a lot of opportunities that they were provided. And for me, again, you know, just to talk to a woman of color who had experienced, I'd gone through the program and had gotten a lot out of it, made a big impact. And so as I was looking out in my last year of graduate school to what I wanted to do afterward, that, you know, interaction stuck in my mind. And I knew about that program and I thought, okay, well, let me try this as a pathway into government because, you know, I kind of knew there's a PMF program, there's this one, and I don't really know, you know, other ways to, to get inside, to get where I want to be in my longer term career. So I'm, I'm very grateful, you know, to have had those people connections along the way that pointed me toward this, this opportunity. And, you know, someone, for someone with a nuclear policy background, it was very, uh, it made sense um, to apply for the program. And I'm grateful that I did. And it, I think it's just translated well to my experience um, with the NNSA. Um, as mentioned, I work in the Office of Nuclear Export Controls. And I see those research experiences that I had in the past as really, really relevant. The work that I do now, I had, you know, done some more theoretical thinking about the export, multilateral export control regimes as a researcher. And then, you know, to come inside government and what I really wanted from the government experience was kind of on the ground, hands-on, you know, active kind of work. I'm not just researching, but getting out there and meeting with international partners and, you know, really understanding what the actual challenges are to go from kind of what you're writing about and thinking about in a theoretical basis and actually seeing how you can encourage countries and influence them to take the steps that they need to actually uh, implement effective best practices. So it's, it's been um, linear, you know, when I look back at my story, maybe it seems linear, definitely was not the case. So many people along the way, again, who kind of pointed me on this path into where I am now. But I would say I'm very grateful for this opportunity. It's one where you're kind of pushed in as an, as an action officer, really, and given responsibilities if you choose to, 
to take them on to manage, to work with colleagues who have more experience than you do, to get out there. I think for, for Warda and Erica and I, we were kind of pushed out in international environments that were very <laughs> foreign to us in our, in our first years with the program or with the, with the NGFP program. And I know that those experiences really pushed me and challenged me in ways that I wouldn't have expected, but I'm very grateful for them and grateful to have this opportunity, you know, early-ish on in my career to actually be in government and doing the work. Tracy, what led you to the NNSA? I think I'm still trying to figure that path out. It was definitely not linear. I got into nuclear as a PhD student. So I was never, I never had a nuclear class. I never interacted with the NNSA. I was a low temperature physicist working on things completely unrelated to nuclear. So I did my first nuclear class because somebody suggested this class and thought it would be great. And this was as a PhD student where you're supposed to expand into a new arena. And so, but once I got involved in nuclear, there was just a lot of opportunities that were was put in front of me. And I think that was partially because going to the University of Tennessee that had dedicated nuclear engineering program, even though I wasn't in the program, I was exposed to the opportunities. Also doing research at the National Lab because I did my dissertation work at Oak Ridge National Lab. There were so many graduate students who went on from that opportunity into the NGFP that all those resources that I didn't know about before, they all became, I was no, it was no put in front of me. And it's, it's very interesting that, I mean, everybody on the call know that is thinking of applying. You're one step closer because one thing is about knowing about the program, right? I mean, when I was, I went to a liberal arts undergrad, no nuclear program, mostly natural sciences program, didn't know about it. Also, very early on in my career, I was started out as an international student, so definitely didn't know about this field. Once I found out about the program, one of the things that pushed me to apply was that I knew I wanted a non-traditional science experience after graduating, and I knew I wanted to have an international focus. And so the different offices that you could connect with at NNSA just seemed like the best way to make that possible. Also, as a graduating PhD student, I know I didn't want a postdoc, but I knew I wanted a job. <laughs> and so this was a very good transition. And the application process in which you, when you know that you get the position, it's very, it's much easier to transition into your dissertation defense knowing you have a job. And that was very, very helpful. And so I applied because I just thought that this was a great opportunity to get that early career experience at NNSA. I think it was mentioned before, it's not easy to navigate how to get that long-term position, not necessarily a two-week training, but that long-term opportunity to hone skills, learn. You know, you're expected, you're coming in to support, but you're also coming in to learn. And that's the expectation from it. And that was a great opportunity for me, for somebody who had been in the field for about just over two years. And I think Erica mentioned this, if you're not nuclear, if you've never done CBRN work, that should not be a reason to apply. My class was extremely diverse. We had people who were doing criminal law before, but they had expertise that were useful to the field. And people who were doing HR, 
and it was useful to the field. So regardless of what your background is, if you qualify and are interested, I encourage you to apply. Thank you, Tracy. And I, I really appreciate that point that you're making about everyone. Do not think that you cannot apply because you have not studied nuclear security. Marina, I'm going to pass it on to you. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's so many overlaps, I think, between Erica and Lauren and Tracy's story and my own. I really resonate with Tracy's conversation about, you know, where your head is at when you're in the midst of a PhD program, because I was in a very similar space when I originally applied for the NGFP. So I was getting my PhD in nuclear engineering. Um, and she talks about like the forcing function of trying to finish up and it, the incentive of having a job on the back end to motivate you to write and to motivate your committee to let you go, right? So this was, this was a, in part my motivation for applying for the NGFP. But it's interesting because I remember having a conversation with one of my advisors. I can't remember where I found the link for the program originally. I don't know. It wasn't a recruitment event or something like that. Some way it came across my desk. And, you know, my research in graduate school was on treaty verification technology. So I, as a part of that research, had read a lot of the literature and documents that came out of the NNSA, the reports out of NNSA, out of DOD. So I was familiar that these entities were players in this space, right? But I was coming from a very technical perspective. But I was always curious about like what life in the government looked like. I never had kind of a vision of my end state of like where I'm trying to go with this. I've just been following like one good opportunity after the next. So coming up on the end of my PhD, I'm like, well, I need to figure something out. I know I'm curious about these, these government folks. I don't really know what they do, but I read a lot of their output. So my, my, my thought was, okay, we'll put this on the table as a potential option. And Tracy talked about having an unconventional experience post-PhD. And I was very much in that space as well because I knew I didn't, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a professor. At least at that point, I had enough post-traumatic stress from the academic environment that I pretty much thought at that point I didn't want to do that. So I was looking for alternatives and the government was one. But I remember having a conversation with my advisor, bringing him the fellowship idea, and he was really resistant at, at first. You know, he didn't really understand why are you going there? What are you trying to do? He didn't really know about the program. And for me, that was looking back on it now, it is such a testament to like trusting your own gut, you know, because you know what you're interested in and you may not know how these experiences are going to manifest into the next opportunity. But if something in your spirit is telling you, like, this seems like it's worthwhile, like, don't let people kind of deflate that, that vision that you have for yourself. So I applied anyway. And, you know, I, I'm assuming we'll talk more about the application process. But my work, as I said, was on treaty verification. And the great thing about the NGFP fellowship is it gave me the opportunity to look at the other side of the coin, which is like stockout stewardship. So not just about dismantling weapons, but also about how do you maintain the nuclear deterrent, well, how do you modernize, how do you refurbish? That's the office that I went into. So it was completely different skill set. Now I had to get familiar with the actual warhead systems and with the delivery vehicles and with the modernization programs. And it was a level of technical insight that I feel like you can't get outside of government because a lot of that information is behind the glass door, right? You have to have a clearance in order to do that work. So as an academic, 
you can speculate, right? But you don't have the actual technical data to draw concrete conclusions. And that's what the NGFP gave me was that insight. You know, they really exposed me to the complex. They exposed me to kind of what the 40-year vision is for the NNSA in terms of what we're doing with our nuclear weapons. And that's been insight that I've been able to leverage even outside of outside of the government, which I left after that for a lot of different reasons, just because I'm curious and I want to see what's going on. <laughs> so I might go back, but but it's proved very useful in my in all of my next experiences. Thank you so much for sharing that, Marina. I mean, just to speak a little bit about even my own path to the NNSA. I started as, I was somebody who was going through a chemical engineering program at Texas A&M University at Tucker, and they have a branch campus in the Middle East, and that's the one that I went through for majority of my time. I could have never imagined, I don't think I knew what weapons of mass destruction really were. I didn't know that there's a whole space of policy that you can study or pursue a career in. So I somehow, again, through mentors, through people who contribute to your career and being open to advice and things that are outside of your kind of general scope of knowledge, somebody introduced me to the Chemical Weapons Convention, and that ultimately led me to apply for an internship at the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons in The Hague. I thought I was going to pursue a career in oil and gas. It turns out I ended up moving to The Hague for that internship. And that was it. It was a Kickstarter and it introduced me to the CBRN space. Now my interests pretty much were in, in the chemical security and the chemical non-proliferation space, mainly because, I mean, as a chemical engineer, I had no idea that there were governments using chemical weapons against their people. I had no idea that there were terrorist groups, you know, using chemical weapons against their people. This is this was all news, new news to me when I jumped into the more policy realm. And I think it made me, for me, the mission is important and the mission I serve is very, very important. So working in the chem non-cooperation space as somebody with a chemical engineering background, I knew I ultimately wanted a master's degree in the policy space to better understand and speak the policy side. And I just wanted to be a sponge in the space and learn as much as I could from other people who were practicing policy. So ultimately, I ended up finding about the NNSA graduate fellowship program when I joined the George Washington University, where I got my degree in security policy. Stuff. And thanks to the recruitment events that PNNL was on, but I also had people tell me in passing, mentors, people wrote to me in emails. The first time I ever heard about the program was when I was just an undergrad, like I, after I completed my undergraduate degree. And somebody sent me the link to it and I said, I'm, but I'm not eligible to apply. But it goes back to what Tracy said. Finding out about an opportunity is just the first step. You make yourself eligible to apply to the program because you put in the work and you have the work ethic and in it, you have everything you need inside of you to make that happen for you. So focus on the present. And I think just anybody who's listening to this even right now, this is the first good step in the right direction to make opportun endless opportunities kind of open up for you. And I mean it when I say that for this particular fellowship program, just kind of seeing the growth and the kind of opportunities that it has provided just by going through the experience, meeting other people in government, meeting, expanding your network in the nuclear security space, in the CBRN space. It is what you make of it. And I think it's been a great, great, great kind of experience that I'm grateful that people, the panelists here today, 
all of us had conversations about it. But because I've never verified, because I get to work with Erica every day at the NNSA, but you all kind of encouraged somebody who wanted to serve a mission that she believed in and wanted to apply, but didn't know how to. Now, that being said, I loved something that Marina brought up about the parents. I personally wasn't sure, like for me, one of the biggest, I went to a WCAPS event a couple of years ago that happened at Hudson Institute. And it was about diversity in the nuclear space. And a question I asked at that particular event is what happens when your diversity works against you in terms of how it slows down your clearance processing? And that is when somebody on the panel, Marina, you were on that panel, and Tracy, you were on that panel too. We didn't meet that day, but it was very encouraging to kind of hear the response I got from somebody who works at the NNSA who pitched the program to me and said, this is what you need to apply to. Because the fellowship provides you the opportunity to work while you're waiting on your clearance. And I will say one of the best things about the program for me personally was the ability to serve a mission that I fully believe in, that supports our national security, our global security, do that while I'm waiting on a clearance, knowing that that's not something that is an obstacle for me to work in a space that this doubly caps makes me believe I do belong in. So it is it is definitely something I want to pass on to anybody else who uh, is questioning the opportunities that are or aren't available to them. This one, I want you to know, is open to you and you can wait on your clearance while you're working and serving the NSA. So I'm going to now switch over to another question. Speaking about just fellowship experiences, one, we're all here because it mostly has been a positive experience for us. What I'm curious is instead of kind of hearing about what your day looked like or kind of the bullets you put under your resume when you say you're an NSA graduate fellow, I want to hear about what stood out to you about your fellowship experiences and what do you think made it meaningful and why are we here telling other people to apply to the program? Um, so Lauren, shall I start with you? Sure. I think you, know, you hit on some of the, a couple of the reasons I would say. One is that, yes, it's an a lower barrier to entry into the government. Like you said, you can be waiting on your clearance and already getting that experience. I, I would say that, and I often tell this to people who are interested in the program or starting a new job, uh, regardless of where they are, that I really think that opportunities are what you make of them. I really believe that. And, you know, this, this program itself uh, in particular is it's kind of your first step into government, right? Like that's not how most people approach it. But I also think that, you know, we everyone has shared what their backgrounds were coming into the program. I think you can really take that and leverage it. And, you know, you're, you're there to learn, absolutely. And I think you enter, enter any job with like a, a humility uh, to learn from others. But if you've got some area of interest, if you've got, you know, a particular area of expertise, or you just want to, you just want to take the initiative in some area, I think the program really lends it to that, you know, taking what you're already good at and being able to apply it, but also challenging yourself. So I, on, on both fronts, I felt like, you know, coming into a nuclear export control program, having done a lot of research in the past, focusing on multilateral export control regimes was great for my contextual knowledge. But I, I felt one thing I, I will really always look back on from my fellowship experience is that my colleagues were really willing to kind of push me in, you know, drag is not the right word because it was much more positive than that, but kind of drag me around on their international engagements and pull me into their meetings and say, 
you know, one of my first trips abroad um, happened to be during the government shutdown in 2019. And so it was an opportunity where there was a lot of kind of confusion around whether the trip was going to happen. And because of that, my colleague, you know, colleague had to rely on everyone on the team really heavily, which included me um, as a fellow on my first trip abroad and kind of pushed me to give presentations in front of, you know, a Filipino government audience, which would have probably been out of my comfort zone. Uh, if, you know, if you'd asked me to do that in the first place. So just thinking of the, of the experience as an opportunity to show and demonstrate what you're already great at and already good at, but just being open and willing to take on those new experiences. You know, I would say, say yes, more than no, within reason, you know, don't discount yourself because you haven't done something in the past. You don't have, you know, think you have a particular qualification. If you say yes, then you're going to get the opportunity to show and prove yourself. And I feel like that's been the case all throughout my experience as a fellow, full-time employee now at NNSA. Never would have imagined, you know, having an opportunity to be in one-on-one meetings with government officials and, you know, being up in front of audiences all around the world. You know, another, I can think of a lot of, you know, examples of just moments that stand out to me. But for example, uh, in traveling to India, you know, I I've taken basic level Hindi classes in the past, but can now say that I've like had the opportunity to speak my basic Hindi, you know, in front of Indian government officials and see the reaction when they're like, what in the world? (laughs) You know, this person has that, that background and just when would I've ever had that opportunity? And I credit, you know, this program and people pushing me out there and saying, you know, you can do this, get up there, give a presentation. So all, all of those things. Are, are the moments and the opportunities that I look back on and say, wow, like when would I have had this opportunity or been pushed to do this as a early stage, you know, early career government official or employee? So, you know, we all have, a, we all, everyone is going to talk about their own unique experiences that we've had on the international and domestic side, but I think you can count on being pushed out of your comfort zone, being challenged, having the opportunity to do things that you never would have thought you'd be able to do, but also really show your strengths and shine through that opportunity if you're willing to take the chance and take on that challenge. Thank you, Lauren. I didn't know you spoke Hindi, so I feel like we're going to have to hop on a call <laughs> to just try it and use the language. Let's, let's move over, over to Tracy and hear about what stood out for you and your fellowship experience. So I was in the 2015 to 2016 fellowship class. I was in, you mentioned before, the Office of Export Control. I'd never done export control before, and I wasn't quite sure I knew exactly what it was. So my first day on the job was, it's been, it was a learning experience. Also, I was in an office that normally had two fellows supporting, one fellow supporting each team. I was the only fellow in the office, so I was floating between teams. So that was new for them also. So they had to transition to that. So it was learning and growing experience for both sides. And I would have to say that, although I'm sure it would have been easier for them to have two fellows, it benefited me to be the only fellow on the team because not only did I get to support their more technical kind of work, but also their international engagements. And that leveraged not only my I would have to say that I leaned a lot upon the so-called soft skills. In, in sometimes in science, they don't really appreciate that as much. But that attention to detail, that analytical kind of background, I might not be using what I did in my dissertation, but I was using those things that made you a good grad student. 
and made you succeed in your graduate program. And I, um, Lauren talked about her first trip. My first trip was to Ukraine. And the morning of the first day, they told me somebody is not able to give a presentation, so you will have to. And it I've never seen a presentation before, as I said, kind of new to this topic. But if there's one thing a graduate student can do is give a presentation, because that's what you live and die by. So, you know, and a lot of my experiences have been like that. I mean, last minute on your toes kind of things. And I believe just in a year, how much I've learned and how much I've grown. I am four years later still involved in export control. And that wouldn't have been the case if it wasn't for that opportunity. Also, this, just CBRN, is such a very small field. I've worked with people that I worked when doing export control in non-export control areas. Things are connected. And what you think is, you know, it's just important in that one specific field, it carries over into a lot. And so all that I've learned and all that I've experienced during the one year of the fellowship, I have I've used constantly. And also the training opportunities that you get to build your knowledge, not only in the field that you're doing, but outside of the field is incomparable. I would say the NNSA fellowship is a make your own fun kind of thing. It's whatever you put in to it. So I mean, different people have different experiences, but the experience is basically, what are you trying to get out of it? And put in the work for it. I ask questions a lot, volunteered for things that I'm not sure what I was volunteering for, but I needed, I wanted to learn. And I put myself out there and that's how I think I got the most out of the experience. Thank you, Tracy. Marina, can we move on to you about what stood up stood out about your fellowship experience? One of the things I value the most about my fellowship experience, I guess, is is the opportunity to really understand the culture of government. I think there's a lot of people who speak on government but have never spent time in government, don't understand the pace, don't understand the constraints, don't understand the sensitivities, right? And to have the ability to go into the NGFP program and they throw you into the work like day one, you know what I'm saying? Because the thing that we don't understand or we don't, we don't often explain about the structure of government is that, you know, there are limits on how many people they can hire, you know? So these federal full-time hire caps you know, they limit the, the workforce, but the demand for work is not limited, right? So your portfolio can continue to expand, but you're not able to bring as many bodies as you would like to complete that work, right? And I say that to say, when you come in as a fellow, you're a new body, right? And they're ready to put work on your plate. They're ready to bring you into the real deal, like no training wheels, you know, and that was... That was really surprising to me, right? Because as Tracy said, you know, you come in and you don't necessarily know what this program is, what this budget line number is, who I'm supposed to talk to, what is a FinSIP, all these different things. So it's it's daunting, like I'm not even gonna lie, but it's exciting. 
at the end of the day because you have real responsibility, right? It's not a theoretical exercise. You're actually talking to real engineers or real weapon designers. You're actually going to the real labs, you know? So that was, that was interesting. It's, a, it's an appreciation that I've been able to take with me to the NGO space. And now in this kind of hybrid space that I exist in at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, which is kind of like an NGO, kind of like a national lab. So that was useful. Just, just the, the actual tangible experience with how different government life is relative to academia or the NGO space and being able to speak authoritatively about that. Oh, and I'm sorry, one last thing. Uh, maybe I'm naive about this, but it was surprising to me, or I guess it was refreshing, a learning experience, how political government is. <laughs> and it, it, I mean, it goes without saying, but you, there's like the history that we write down and then there's the way that the decision was actually made, right? And when you're there, for example, I was in the office when we were doing the plutonium pit manufacturing analysis of alternatives, right? And that was a really controversial decision. Where are we going to put our pit manufacturing capability? Is it going to be in Los Alamos or is it going to be in Savannah River? Congress plays a huge role. What's Lindsey Graham got to say about it? Like having to track all these different things and seeing the kind of backdoor dealing that goes on, it was really eye-opening to me, you know? So maybe I'm late to the party, but it was it was definitely a useful kind of um, experience to take with me. Thank you for sharing that, Marina. Now I'm going to pass it on to Erica to share the experience yeah. in the CD. So, you know, my, I really just, so much of what has been said already really resonates with, with my experience as well. But one of the things I think that stood out to me is along the lines of, you know, leveraging the skills you have, the experience that you have. When you walk in the door from day one, you become a member, you know, of this team and an asset and you bring so much to the table that they do rely on that from day one. And for me, I really appreciated, you know, we were the, this, this, Last year's class, uh, 2019 to 2020, was the first time that they incorporated this requirement of completing an aspiring leader certificate program while you're also sort of doing your day-to-day -day work with your individual teams. And the leadership trainings that were available, so Tracy spoke about just the, the training environment and support for training that I think is, is pretty unique to the nuclear security enterprise, but NNSA in particular, there was just a lot of emphasis on leadership training and getting to know yourself as a leader. So, you know, it was, it, it was really important to not only spend that time in the classroom and reflect on who you are as a leader, your strengths, you know, areas that you'd want to work on, but you're actually able to apply that also in real time while you're, you know, working as a member of of your team. So, you know, for me, I found that that really helped, you know, create a level of confidence. I mean, I could just see my growth happening in such a short period of time. That is, is something that I, I truly appreciate as well. Erica, thank you. And, and I feel like I can only just add on to some of the things you've already mentioned. I'm glad you mentioned the Advanced Leadership Certificate Program. That was a new thing they did for fellows this year. I think that was an opportunity, to be honest, to just meet leaders at the National Nuclear Security Administration that we would have otherwise not had an opportunity to reach out to. And again, the fellowship is what you make of it. And I do feel, you know, there's so much you can learn and invest in yourself while you're in the program 
depending on how much you make out of the opportunities that you're given. I also, one thing I, I, I feel like I want to talk about, the international experiences that happened. I think there's a lot of travel that's associated as being a fellow. That is, I've definitely been to places I don't think I could have ever imagined going to, but that's just one thing. You're serving the mission in all these places you're going to, and you're getting to see kind of those interactions that happen between your international counterparts and international partners with the U.S. government firsthand. Um, And I think that's just a learning experience you get to see just by physically being there. Speaking about the professional development that, you know, has already been touched upon, one of the courses that I got to go attend in the Netherlands was this weapons of mass destruction, disarmament, non-proliferation course that the OPCW used to put together with the Osner Institute. This was a course I had known of for many years, but there is something that a struggle that we have in the space where there are some opportunities that are not accessible to everybody because of the price that is associated with them and the cost that is associated with them. And I feel what the NGFP did was made some of these opportunities more accessible to me. That a course that I thought about for many years, but quite frankly, would not have done it on my own, was became accessible to me as a result of the professional development opportunities that the fellowship provides. So, I mean, I think that's that's something I want to highlight, and also the fact that just being a graduate student and the expenses and the costs that come with that, the fellowship reimburses tuition. And I think that's also something that it is, is just such a benefit of being part of the program. But in terms of just what it taught me, I think for me, the best part is when you can meet people who are in the government and learn from them while you're going through it. I think I really want to call out the people who made this a valuable experience were team members, mentors, supervisors, colleagues like Erica, Lauren, you know, our coffee sessions and the hope that we give each other when you know, we're going through day-to-day challenges being a fellow at the NNSA. And that is probably a good transition to a question that I do want to ask all the panelists as well. We can, we've talked about this fellowship and all the amazing opportunities that come with it, but there are challenges. And it would be awesome if everyone can kind of identify one challenge and how did you overcome it? And I'll, I'll just start off very quickly before I pass it on, but I do think one of the challenges came with the perception of a fellow and what that means to people. I think based off of who you are talking to in, at the National Nuclear Security Administration generally, the perception of a fellow varies. Um, the way offices perceive fellows, the way you're your colleagues will perceive you the way other people within the organization will perceive you. I, you can go anywhere from being referred to as an intern or being thought of as an intern to being thought of as a valuable team member and your contributions are important. And I want to stick, hold on to that one because that is the real thing. Your contributions are important and you will, the workload and the stuff that you get to do as a fellow, as like my colleagues kind of have mentioned here already, is substantial work. And It is what you make of it, regardless of how people perceive you. But overcoming that comes with the people you work with and how they protect your credibility when they introduce you to a partner, to a person in the government, to somebody else. And again, it really helps to have a good network of people. And Lauren and Erica, I will say thank you for kind of being that network for me at the NNSA, where I think we've definitely had 
conversations that have kept us going through the challenges. Lauren, I will pass it on to you to speak to your challenge. Sure. Correct for me. Uh, I know we wanted to talk a little bit about our experiences you know, as women of color in particular. So I can either talk about that as a challenge or if we're going to get to that. Yes, I, we definitely need to touch on that too. So feel free to even speak about diversity and how the role that plays in all of this. Yeah, I mean, I think my, my broader point would be about like the steep learning curve and just the transition to the environment that the NNSA is, which I think many of us have hit upon. And I think there, there are the kind of general challenges of just of jumping into government from other spaces that we were all coming from. So for me, you know, coming from uh, NGO space, academia, like Marina was saying, it's just, it's a very, very different world. And so I felt like when I first got there as a fellow, I thought I had, you know, this nuclear policy background. But that's very different than like the program management, the implementation background, and really the nitty gritty issues, particularly in the export control space that I felt like I needed to learn. And so I got there and there were all these acronyms, all these programs, and just, it felt like, I, I know this is cliche, but like, it felt like you're you know, drinking out of the watering hose. Like there's so many things that I feel like I need to learn right off the beginning, uh, right off the, the bat that I knew inside were going to take me a little while to get up to speed on but you, you feel like you're, you're kind of drowning a little bit when you first start. And that's compounded, I think, for probably, well, I'll speak to some, something like this. It's compounded by the fact that you're coming in to an environment which, which like the broader national security space, is less diverse than the, the general population. I'll say it like that. And so you're walking into a space, and all of us, you know, as women of color, where, you know, maybe we may be one of few, I'm sure in plenty of instances, and one of only, you know, ourselves um, as women of color walking into these spaces. And there's that, that's the extra burden, you know, that's placed on all of us to know that you're, you know, supposed to just be starting out and have a lot to learn and there's a steep learning curve. But then the, you know, the aspect of being kind of the only one and you know, for myself, you know, I've had to deal with uh, not feeling like I need to prove anything beyond just being myself and bringing my own whole, you know, expertise into a space. And so that was definitely part of the challenge. I wouldn't even, it's not even entirely unique to NNSA, it's the national security space overall, to government overall, um, to DC professional spaces overall. And so for me, a part of overcoming that, um, just like you were mentioning, Warda, it's finding people to talk to, people who, you know, who are going to serve as mentors, who have gone through the experience, just like you have, but have that, hopefully, you know, in some cases, had that added experience of being a woman of color or being a minority in their environments. Because that's, I feel like that, that experience really speaks to me and I'm able to say, okay, this is how you navigated it. This is how lessons that I can learn. And then even outside of an NSA, I think you know, your workplace is one place to draw inspiration and um, support. And I'll call, I mean, Tracy definitely has been that for me. You know, she was a previous fellow in my exact office working with the exact people that I work with. So it was such a, a wonderful thing to be able to talk to her about my unique experiences. But having organizations like WCAPS outside of my, you know, work environment, you know, working, meeting different people from across DC, from across the um, CBRN space, and being able to see how our experiences differ and compare. So it's building that community, mentors, making sure you've got those people, you know, at work and outside to be able to bounce ideas off of and say, is this okay? Like, this happened to me, you know? <laughs> those kinds of things. So just knowing who to go to when you face challenges that maybe are unique to being a woman of color in the national security space. That's, that's what I would say. Awesome. Eric, I'll pass it on to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to emphasize uh, Lauren's point about really being intentional about having a support system for yourself. Of course, you know, Warda, you were that for me in our office and 
Lauren, as you know, the mini sessions we had at Starbucks, you know, just to really just check in with Bo because, you know, I think out of the six or seven international trips that I went on, I was definitely the only woman in probably uh, five out of those trips. And not to mention the only person of color, not just on the team, but sometimes feeling like I was the only person of color in the entire country. So it really was beneficial to have that support team just to check in, dealing with the imposter syndrome and feeling like, you know, am I really, <laughs> you know, just in the right place? And am I, you know, having to remind you that you are qualified to be where you are. There's a reason why you're in the room and there's a reason why you have a seat at the table. Just having that reminder was super helpful. For me, I think challenge that I faced also during the fellowship, I mean, I mentioned that I came to this fellowship at a point where I had had, you know, many years working in international development and there is a set salary for the fellowship and I think it's you know based on you'll hear maybe hear more about this or it's available on the website it's public information but there's a certain salary level depending on whether you come in with a PhD or a master's degree as someone who you know I had many years of work experience you know I did take a pay cut to to take this opportunity and you know it's something I think it's important to emphasize because you know, not everyone may not be in a place where, they, where they're able to do that. And being in a D.C. metropolitan area is expensive, especially if you, you know, don't want to spend all morning commuting. But that was, you know, one thing that I'd say definitely takes some time to adjust to if you're not used to it. Because, you know, at the, I mean, other when we started, we weren't in a position where we we're working from home. But when you kind of factor in the commuter you know, expenses and, you know, just, just, just living expenses in general, it was definitely an adjustment for myself and a number of our colleagues as well. I also have a family, you know, and so I think, you know, in our fellowship class, there was just a few of us with families, but, you know, with such a, it's such a unique opportunity that I think, you know, should not be denied for a number of people and, you know, especially, you know, salary, you wouldn't want to be one of them, but it is, you know, something that's real that people have to face. So I definitely found that adjustment to be challenging. And a number of folks, you know, they decided that it may have been a little bit too difficult on them and they didn't finish out the full year and ended up you know, maybe taking some offers before the, the end of the 12 month of the fellowship, which has to as you know, as an individual, you have to make those decisions. But that's one thing that I think is important to bring up as a number of things to consider, not just the, you know, your career and the wonderful professional development opportunities and the opportunities you travel, but does it work for you at this time in your life uh, financially as well? Thank you. Tracy Marina. We'll go Tracy and then Marina. There was a number of different challenges over the year. One of them was I mean, I was coming from a very technical kind of environment into, although NNSA has wider cadre of technical experts than where I went on afterwards at the State Department, you were still the technical person in the room with a lot of policy going on. And throwing that in with, as Marina mentioned, the level of bureaucracy that, I mean, if you're, if you're new to government, it's, it's a lot. It, I mean, it, it's, it, some of it is there for a reason, and some of it feels like it just slows down progress. And 
the frustration with also being a fellow where you don't have a sign off rights on anything. You know, you just feel like sometimes you're just talking into a void, but nothing is moving. And you're also there for a year. And a lot of these policy and initiatives take so long. They were, they started before you got there and they're still continuing. And so had to learn a lot about patience and not being frustrated because it doesn't happen as quickly as you want it to. One of the things that was, I started on in the fellowship a little before WCAPS came online, but there was already the beginnings of that support network. And coming from physics, this was new for me, <laughs> right? Having women of color and supporters of women of color in the field, advising, mentoring, helping guide you through and avoiding some of the pitfalls that they went through was, was very good. I appreciated it. Also, the trust and support, like some of the things that I got to do was because my, my teammates saw that I was capable and put me forward, even if I wasn't sure yet. And so that helped advance me throughout this fellowship year and, and continuing because that support network has continued even after the fellowship. The, the nuclear, the CBRN field is, it's a network. And once you start working with people in it, that, that continues no matter where you go. And I'm sure Marina is still interacting with a lot of the people that she's interacted before. And I mean, we were on a panel together a couple of years ago. And I mean, that, that connection continues. And I think organizations like the CAPS help foster that relationship. And it makes an already challenging, a lot of people have been moving to DC for the first time. And it's a, its own speed working at somewhere like NNSA for the first time, which is its own. I mean, you have like triple whammies of new things encountering at the same time. And just that those people to talk to or support network or people who can guide you is very important. And I would say as a fellow, no matter where you are in your career, you always need that help and support. Even if you've worked for 20 years before get coming into the program, which some people have, or you're new to it. Lean on these people that are around you who have done it before and trust their experience because it, it will help you avoid some of those challenging heartache experiences that they might have had that you don't need to go through, you know? And so I, I would say that has been very helpful, but nothing kind of matches being that woman of color on an international delegation into some in some countries where they're not used to seeing you there and trying to deal with that interaction you know while being representative of the united states and this effort that is trying is being put forward and each experience is interesting and you never quite get used to it <laughs> each one has its new nuance with each engagement you go on. And I found that the fellowship helped prepare me for subsequent work that I do. Most of what I do now is international engagement with government and non-governmental officials from different countries in which sometimes women, there are no other women in the room from our host country and definitely sometimes no person of color. And so 
you are that representative. And sometimes the burden of being a representative for too many things at one time is a lot. But as I said, with the support of your colleagues, this is made a lot easier. Right. So I guess I'll jump in. I mean, I, I agree with everything that Erica and Lauren and, and Tracy have said so far. I thought of three challenges. Um, so the first was kind of happened before I actually started the program. So as I mentioned, I was going from a PhD program into the NGFP, or that's how it was supposed to happen until my advisors decide, decided to delay my defense, right? And this might happen to anyone who is going from a PhD because you have this tentative defense date, but it's all based on your advisor signing off, right? So in my case, it was an 11th hour decision that they decided they wanted more from me. And thankfully the NGFP folks were willing to work with me. Right. And I say this because I've had other folks that have done NGFP after me have a similar situation and letting them know to let the NGFP leadership know that you're having a delay and they can work with you. They'll work with the program office to hold your spot. Right. So you might be able to start in December or in my case, I had to start a whole year later. And I did the orientation twice and I went back to the same office, but they were willing to wait for me so that I could have the experience. So if you find yourself in that situation, don't count yourself out. You need to start communicating with the NGFP organizers and coordinators as early on and giving them updates so they'll know how to play the situation. Okay. If you're particularly in a PhD process. Once I got there, I think one of the challenges that I had, particularly on the being a woman of color piece, was I got some, I got a number of pieces of advice that were intended to be helpful, but were very unhelpful for me. That just created a lot of, not confusion, but just like additional unnecessary chatter in my head. So one example was a, a more senior person of color kind of advised me to be careful how much time I spend with the, with the secretarial staff or with the receptionist staff, right? Now, if you don't, if you've never worked in DC, it is called Chocolate City because there are a lot of people of color here, right? In the, you know, years and years ago, it was 80% black. And the federal government was a wonderful pathway for upward mobility for a lot of black folks. So there's a lot of people of color in, in the NNSA in Forrestal, but a lot of them are, you know, administrative assistants, executive, you know, chiefs of staff, that type of thing. And of course, as a person in my office, you know, gonna be respectful, make friends, talk to everybody. But the issue as a woman of color is you can quickly become, at least I think this is what they were trying to tell me, you can quickly become mistaken for a secretary as opposed to a fellow or as opposed to a policymaker or anything like that. And this was what they were trying to tell me, but what it made me feel like I was so self-conscious after that, right? How much, you know, because I, I have natural relationships with these people, you know, they're nice people, we're talking, they're helping me move my tasks you know, helping me make meetings with really important folks. If you've ever worked in a government setting, you know that the admins are the bread and butter, right? They are the gatekeepers of schedules, of emails, of all that type of stuff. So you want to have a good relationship with them, but there's this calculation that this person was putting on me, right? That I needed to be careful and make sure I didn't present the image that I was a secretary as opposed to a fellow. That's an issue that our majority counterparts don't have to deal with. And for me, the way to overcome that is I just had to push that out of my head. You know, like that is a piece of advice that did not serve me, 
So I wasn't going to subscribe to it. Right. So me and my admin who I sat right next to, right. Because fellows sit where they sit. We still cool, you know, so don't, don't, every everything that is intended by people to be good for you may not be good for you and you have to filter it yourself and figure out how you're going to move through the space in a way that doesn't have you doing these unnecessary calculations in your mind that take away from your substantive work if that makes any sense the last piece is a piece that erica touched on and i just want to just snap to that and echo that um this idea of having a family it is it's an issue that's not specific to the nnsa but a lot of times when you're coming out of graduate programs and going into your first professional experiences, it just so happens that those programs overlap at a time in your life where you're trying to make these personal decisions, right? You're, try you're thinking about starting a family. You're thinking about taking that next personal step. And for me, when I was at the NNSA, this is before the recent developments about paid maternity leave and paid family leave and all this, there was no maternity leave policy when I was there. And I was a 30-year-old woman who was thinking about having her first child. And I remember having a colleague of mine who was pregnant with twins at the time, a senior leader, who was having to borrow vacation time from her colleagues in order to piece together enough leave time so she could take a maternity leave. And that blew my mind, right? Like, with this is the United States of America. So for me, you know, that was you know, for better or for worse, one of the things I had to calculate because I did end up getting pregnant later that year, right? So I couldn't not have maternity leave. I think the situation, I'm not sure the PNNL folks can, or the NNSA folks can speak to this, is probably different now. But that's a challenge that I think, particularly to women, that we have to do that calculation. And more so to men now, more and more, that they're becoming, you know, more active participants in the home, having paid maternity or paid family leave that can help them transition and still be professionally aggressive, but not have to sacrifice on the back end, that personal goal. Thanks, Marina. Those are some very, very good points. Hi, my name is Jessie Tuvison. I am the NNSA Graduate Fellowship Recruitment Lead. I wanted to kind of go over some of the generally asked questions that we receive quite often. One of these questions is, what is the timeline for the application and hiring process? So each year we open the application period in February and it goes until the whole application period goes until the first week in October. This year, the um, application is due on October 2nd, 2020 at 11.59 Pacific time. Interviews will be conducted the first two weeks in November. Hiring decisions and offer extensions will be offered in the December and January timeframe. And the fellowship will begin in June and then in the following June. So it'll be June 2021 to June 2022. Another commonly asked question that we do receive are, what are the eligibility requirements for the fellowship? The first requirement is that you are a U.S. citizen. Dual citizens also are eligible to apply. Um, you must be available to work full-time from June 2021 to June 2022. Uh, cumulative GPA of a 3.2 on a 4.0 scale. You must be enrolled and articulating in a graduate degree program at the time of application or have completed a degree on or after April 2nd, 2019. One of the clarifying things that I want to make sure is graduate certificates do not quali or qualify you for the fellowship. So only graduate degree programs. We currently have 60 positions available and 
is some additional information that is near, you will need to complete the application includes just some basic information about yourself um, to include what offices you might be interested in working at and you are able to identify your language skills and also some different job skills on that are identified in the application system. Um, you re also re include your background or education background information. You have the ability to um, include up to four letters of recommendation, but the requirement to complete the application is two. Um, you will include a resume and CV and or CV. Um, you will draft and complete a letter of interest. This will be your writing sample to the hiring managers and it will tell us a little bit about you, why, um, why you're interested in national security, why you're interested in this program, anything else you want us to know. And you will also complete the PNL HR application um, because you will be employees of the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. If you have any questions or would like to learn more about certain aspects of the program, please feel free, feel free to reach out to the NGFP recruitment team at ngfp at pnnl.gov. Thank you. Jesse, I want to thank you for sharing with us how to apply to the National Nuclear Security Administration Graduate Fellowship Program. I also want to thank the Pacific Northwest National Lab for collaborating with our working group for this event. Thank you for your dedication to developing a diverse pool of applicants for future classes of fellows. I want to thank all the panelists for joining us and choosing to be so candid about your fellowship experiences. Thank you for your contributions to both national and global nuclear security. Thank you to Ambassador Jenkins uh, for supporting this event. And Sylvia, thank you for also, you know, having that conversation with me that actually led to us doing this. So thank you. Thank you to everyone who joined us for this event. I hope this has inspired you to apply to the program. And if you personally won't be applying, I do hope that you'll choose and consider like sharing this fellowship experience with others in your network who will. And to all the women of color who are listening to this and who are considering a career in security policy, the playing field needs to be more diverse. But I hope that you know that regardless of who you are, what you believe, whatever your identity is, that you belong in this space. And that is why we wanted to share this opportunity with you today. So thank you everyone for joining us and we hope that to see you at our next event.